the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. We're visiting today with author Mark Ostreicher. We're talking about the issue of hope. His new book is called Hope Casting. And as we've been discussing, oftentimes we have a better handle on what hopelessness is than what true biblical hope looks like. Is hope inextricably, in your opinion, Mark, tied to faith? That's a great question. You know, it's interesting you ask that because I have some relatives in my extended family who are excited for me about my book, but are not believers. And as they've started to read this, they've asked the question, so I'm not a Christian. Does that mean that I can't experience hope? And they're kind of pushing a little bit because they (laughs) are wanting to know if I'm writing them off. Uh, But they're also curious, genuinely curious. And I think it's a fascinating question. I have to say, and there's part of me that isn't completely sure about that. I believe that God gives out, through God's gracious love, gives out gifts to people whether they acknowledge God or not. Um, But I do believe that faith plays a particularly important role in our, our understanding or experience of hope, that that role is particularly played out when we face fear. And so what I discovered, Craig, as I started to dig into both the biblical examples of hope, particularly in the book of Isaiah, but I think we see this unfold in lots of stories in the Bible also, and as I dug into what some people way smarter than myself, particularly people like Walter Brueggemann and Jürgen Moltmann, theologians who have written on the topic of hope, what I saw was this pattern that started to emerge, that from a place of exile, we, and we today experience exiles that are maybe not being forced from our native land, but we, re- we experience relational exiles, or a loss of dreams, or our futures, all kinds of different exiles. From that place, if we're able to be honest with ourselves, and honest with God about our dissatisfaction, if we're willing to release control and ask for salvation, then the next thing that happens is this place of fear. As soon as we release control, and in some ways I think the idea of putting on a happy face and using positive thinking is really a control mechanism, right? I'm gonna try to control this situation into being positive. And that doesn't deliver hope. So when we release control, at that moment we are often faced with fears. Fears about ourselves, fears about God, and that's where faith really comes into play. So this forced optimism that we see oftentimes, I mean, that's not going to carry us far, because as you're suggesting, that leaves out of the equation, and maybe intentionally so in some cases, the true source of hope, and that is God himself. Absolutely, yes, because, I mean, my suggestion is that we cannot create hope, uh, and we don't see that in the Bible. People don't 
drum up hope on their own. Uh, instead, hope is a gift that comes with the presence of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting that you mention that because, you know, reading the book, uh, and and I want you to explain this character to listeners because I think it'll give them a a point of reference here. You talk about um, Bobby W. Clark. Uh, and it's funny because when I read that passage, I thought, you know, that reminds me of a lot of people, and I don't want to get in trouble here with some, but I know that I will. There was a season a number of years ago, maybe 10 years ago, when a little booklet came out called The Prayer of Jabez. And there were folks that were just, you know, quoting this right and left, and there was coins that were stamped that had The Prayer of Jabez on it. And, And the more I heard people talk about this, I thought, okay, this is the latest fad, and it is built on a sense of forced optimism. And uh, the prayer of Jabez in that context reminded me so much of the character Bobby W. Clark in the book. Put that into context for listeners, would you? Yes, I will. Well, that was a horrible situation. I was a young junior high pastor at a church in Omaha, Nebraska, and our our wonderfully revered and wise and deeply spiritual outreach pastor had this great idea for an evangelistic event, and it was to bring in this motivational speaker who was apparently, I didn't know him, but apparently well-known on the business motivational circuit, and he happened to be a Christian, but most people didn't know that. So the idea was bring in this motivational speaker, have a nice dinner in a hotel banquet room, have this motivation have our congregation bring their business associates who didn't know Jesus, and then have this guy talk, give some business principles, and then present the gospel in some ways. It was a, I said it was a classic kind of bait-and-switch, right? We wanted you to come for the business bits, and then suddenly we're going to bring the gospel on you. Come for the business and, was, and stay for the altar call. Got it. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> and it was done in a horrible way, and I experienced it because even though I didn't have business associates because I worked at the church, my wife did. And so, you know, I guilted my wife into guilting some of her co-workers to come to this thing, and because they were friends with her, they came, and, and it was horrible. So Bobby W. Clark, who I mentioned in the book is not his real name, I, I changed his name because I have no interest in defrauding or de- <laughs> defaming uh, a now-dead motivational speaker, but... Um, he he had this stick, Craig, that he used, and I'm kind of there's part of me that's kind of impressed that anybody who has a signature move, and when they do that move, you think, oh, that's Bobby W. Clark's move. That's kind of impressive, right? So his move was that he would say, "Life is wonderful," but when in between "is" and "wonderful," he would kick his leg really high up in the air, which was a little strange and unique to see from a very tall businessman in a suit. Yeah, I mean, if it's the uh, Rockettes it be- uh, uh, at the Radio City Music Hall, it might be different. <laughs> yes. yes, exactly. But that was his thing, and he was known for it, right? It was his motivational line. Life is wonderful, high kick. And at this point, I think he came out of retirement to do this event at our church. He was an older guy, and he, I don't think he'd done the high kick in a few years. And he talked business stuff for, I don't know, maybe three minutes, really, really short. And then he went into a, just a horribly manipulative, shallow version of the gospel. Uh, and at the end of it, he did his move, but he, he kind of pushed, pushed it. He, he hadn't done the high kick in a while, and he said, life is, and then you could tell he was just trying really hard to 
get this thing to work. And he had to try three times before he finally got the high kick to work. And um, and it was just terrible. The whole thing was um, awkward, and uh, I was embarrassed. My wife was embarrassed. But I think in many ways, what aside from the hackneyed version of the gospel, which really wasn't the point of why I included that story in the book, it was, I think that that idea is selling us a lie, and it's a lie that's very prevalent in American culture, and that's that just if you smile, if you grin and bear it, it then everything will be fine. Like you mentioned, Prayer of Jabez, in the book I mentioned kind of a, the secular counterpart in some ways, which was the book The Secret, which told everybody, sold by the millions, told everybody, if you visualize your positive future and believe it and claim it to be true, it will become true. And that kind of thinking, which of course we understandably have big reservations about from a spiritual or a theological perspective, but the reality is it just doesn't work. It doesn't provide me with a kind of sustainable hope that comes from the presence of Jesus. Well, moreover, this sense of the power of positive thinking upon which, uh, you know, the careers of Norman Vincent Peale and uh, the guy that used to run uh, Crystal Cathedral, uh, Robert Schuller and others have have based their entire uh, careers upon, I I think it's interesting because they'll talk about the power of positive thinking, but then if you get them to talk for a while, you come to find out that uh, what they think it takes to have hope actually doesn't arrive until you you find wellness all around. And you have another illustration, even going back to your experience in Haiti, where it's one thing to have hope when all is well going around you, and yet it's an entirely different thing to have hope when everything around you is falling apart. And it's interesting that you note uh, people, and sometimes from our first world perspective, in a third world perspective, we would think this is just a hopeless circumstance. And yet, as you discovered, that group of believers in praise and worship in Haiti following this horribly devastating earthquake, I was down there in November, and believe me, five years later, not much is better. And yet, in the middle of all of that, they found hope. And I guess that's really what you're talking about. It's it's finding hope in and through those difficult moments, the exile moments. Yeah, and, you know, on a, at a much smaller scale than the Haitian people experienced, I went through this journey myself, and really the book was very much a result of my own journey, and it was around that time uh, feeling very kind of lost and wondering what I should do next uh, in my life, how would I both provide for my family, but also where would I find meaning? The job I had had was one of deep meaning, and all of my friendships and everything were connected to it, so all of that was stripped away, and um, In the midst of that, I went out to the desert. I live in San Diego, California, just down from you, and just east of me over the mountains, about 90 minutes, is is a big desert, and there's a a wonderful old couple from my church that have a cabin out there, and I use it sometimes for prayer retreat. So I went out for a whole week to—I was just hoping to meet God. I needed to be silent. I needed to get away from the screaming voices of fear that were in my head— um, and I went out there, and I did something very interesting. I had had a friend encourage me that it would be good to give space to the different strong emotions that I was feeling, and I tend to be fairly reserved and held back about my emotions, which is, I don't think, all that uncommon for men anyhow. Um, and I went out there, and I really gave myself over to a day of anger, and I saw it as a prayer, right? It wasn't just me 
stomping around and cussing in the desert or something. It was uh, about me being honest about how I was feeling before my God, knowing that God was there with me. So a day of anger and a day of hurt and a day of sadness and, um, and a day of fear and I journaled like crazy. And, and then finally a day of joy, which really surprised me because I knew I was going to have that day on the fifth day. And I didn't think it was going to be possible. But once I had kind of been honest about all that other stuff, released control, and opened myself up to the presence of God, I found that God, of course God's going to meet me in that space. And with God's presence comes hope. And I'm, even on that fifth day in the desert, I experienced a tremendous amount of real joy. And I feel like that was the beginning point. That was the first step into uh, some sustainable hope for my future. And it sounds like a big part of that was experiencing honest emotion before God, which sometimes I think we get confused, too. If we're not clear with the Lord about where we're at and how we're feeling in that moment, um, we feel as if, well, that to do so would be sort of maligning or... or um, uh, uh, not being truthful or faithful, rather, to our sense of hope. We'll talk a bit about that as our conversation with Mark Ostreicher. The book, Hope Casting, Finding, Keeping, and Sharing the Things Unseen, continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We continue our conversation with Mark Ostreicher. The book, by the way, Hope Casting, newly released by InterVarsity Press. You'll find it at bookstores around the Bay Area, as well as through the usual suspects, uh, Amazon.com. And uh, also you can get, uh, what's your, your, your website, am I correct here, is whyismarco.com? Yeah, that's my blog. That's okay. Correct. Okay, great. Mm-hmm. Why is Marco M A R K O dot com? All right, let's uh, kind of pull this thing uh, together if we can. We've we've been through a lot of the emotion side of this and, and sort of resetting a lot of our expectations. Um, certainly, having honest emotion before God uh, during that exile period is is critically important. I guess at the end of the day. Um, people wonder, is hope something I create or something that God brings? Yeah, great question. So the the process, as I've seen it in Scripture, is that we have longings, right? All of us have these longings. And whether we're in a hopeless or hopeful time, we have longings and desires. And those are good and bad. There's a whole combination of those. Particularly when we're going through a difficult time, we're experiencing, we often experience longings that are kind of self-focused right, because of our pain, and that's understandable. When God comes and meets us, when we open up and release control, creating space for God to come and meet us, God brings hope, and that starts to transform our longings. And That's where things really start to get beautiful and much more than just about me and my pathetic little problems, because as hope and longing start in what I call this dance, I compare it to a tango dance, because it's this this uh, dance where each of those two partners, hope and longing, continue to inform and change each other. God brings hope that shifts my longings. As my longings shift, I need to exercise more faith that God will make himself known in new ways and give me more faith, and that process starts to transform, and my longings turn outward. Instead of just being self-focused, 
I start to have transformed longings for the world, and that's where we start to see this idea of hope casting, that my hopes start to be for other people and their needs and their longings, and I can actually be an active agent of the hope that God wants to bring to the world. So this isn't just something passive that goes on inside of my heart or my head. I mean, you talk about in the book moving from vision to action, and as you suggest, that, that process, that journey, going from need, becoming hope, becoming action, becoming hope casting. Elaborate on that. Yeah, I really think of it. The, the mental image for me is one of those kind of classic rainbird sprinklers that turns around, you know, and yep. sprays we all know them. Is, is spraying all around in a circle. That that's the picture I have when I have when I experience transformed longings because of the presence of God in my life, bringing hope. I become like that rainbird sprinkler, casting off hope to people around me, and there's no question that's active. That is not just a passive thing. So I start to speak into and serve and pray for and and model hope in front of other people, and it has a cascading effect on their lives. Now, what's brilliant, let me interrupt, Mark, because what's brilliant about that example, if any of us have ever taken the time, uh, and listeners will say, well, Craig, you're just weird, but if any of us have ever taken the time to, to look at the way the rainbird sprinkler head operates, there's this metal arm that moves back against a steady stream of water, and it interrupts that stream of water, and it's on a spring, and it pivots back and forth, and each time it flies into the water, the force of the water presses it in the opposite direction. The spring, of course, takes it back uh, yet once again, and that's what gives that sprinkler head the momentum to go into a circle. So it's interesting because what you're suggesting here is much like the way the rainbird sprinkler head functions. It's the experience of receiving hope, giving hope, receiving hope, giving hope. Is that accurate? Absolutely. That's exactly it. That's the idea. And again, that is what we see over and over again through Scripture. Not only uh, unpacked in detail in the, the book of Isaiah, but we see it in stories like the bleeding woman, the story of Zacchaeus. I see it in blind Bartimaeus. I even see it in the the life of Mary, and over and over again in these stories, we see that pattern emerging. And that pattern, uh, again, there is this process that we've talked about before in, in not just suddenly going from despair to hope in one day, but moving through despair, or, or as you talk about, and I think of uh, the, many of the experiences of the Apostle Paul in this, you talk about embracing dissatisfaction in moving uh, toward hope. Yes. Yeah, because unless we're honest about our dissatisfaction, why is, why is here not good enough, right? Why is this current experience of my day or my life at this time, why is this not enough? What am I dissatisfied about? And that is an honest starting point that postures us. It's not, a, it's not, a, um, it's not six steps to happy living, right? Instead, these are they're postures, they're practices that we can put into our to place in our lives in order to help us release control and open ourselves up to the presence of God. So those postures are honesty with ourselves, that's the dissatisfaction part, right, naming our dissatisfaction, and then honest cries to God, uh, and in that is releasing control. And then we face fear, and we have to exercise faith or a force of will to continue to keep our hands open and not try to grasp control again, 
if we pull back and grasp control, we go right back to exile again. Mm. And if, mm. we, if we practice those three things, then I believe that God uh, is freed up. We have opened ourselves up to the hope-bringing presence of Jesus in our lives. And then, yeah, our longings get transformed and we cast off more hope to others. We, we have certainly distilled into a very short period of time, Mark, a great detail in all of this, and listeners can certainly have the opportunity to go much deeper and understand more about this matter of hope, what it means from a biblical perspective, and not just how to how to to possess it and take and take hold of it and take charge of it, but that sense of hope both in the current tense and the future tense. And as we said a moment ago, hope, uh, you know, starting with need that becomes hope, which becomes action, which becomes hope casting. That's the title of the book, Hope Casting, and it's available, as we mentioned, at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. Its author has been our guest on this segment of the program, Mark Ostreicher. Mark, thanks so much for the time and the insights. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. It was a number of years ago, traveling into China, when I first very clearly and distinctively became aware of the international problem of human trafficking. You know, we think of slavery and things of this sort from an American perspective, largely based on America's experience with the issue of slavery back in the 1800s. It was an eye-opening, startling experience for me to come to the realization that human trafficking is very much alive all over the world today, even taking place here in the United States. And it it takes place in, in many fashions for a lot of different reasons. In China, walking along a street in a major city of the South one day and seeing a number of young girls, some of whom had obvious limbs missing, had been maimed, perhaps, I thought, in an accident of some sort. And in talking with a missionary friend and interpreter, I began to inquire about the alarming number of young ladies that I saw on this particular street that seemed to have uh, a missing arm or a missing hand, something of this nature. And I inquired as to why this was, feeling it was kind of unusual. He went on to explain to me that, well, these are cast-offs. These are young girls who had been kidnapped from their home villages, brought into major cities, and sold as sex slaves, largely the tourist trade. And on occasions, these young girls would fail to cooperate, would perhaps try to uh, turn their captors into the authorities, and so as retribution, they would typically cut off an arm or a hand to maim them in one fashion or another as a means of defiguring them, making them less desirable, handicapping their ability to earn a living, and ultimately punishing them for not being cooperative with the sex traffickers. That opened my eyes to what has become a global problem. And as we talk about this topic today, I'm joined by Sean Litton. Sean is Vice President of Field Operations on behalf of International Justice Missions. They direct casework operations around the world in places from Latin America to Africa, South Asia, Southeast Asia, developing intervention strategies and advocating with local and national authorities to address the problem of human trafficking around the globe. And, Sean, great to have you on the program today. Craig, it's wonderful to be with you. Thank you. 
That experience that I had in China a number of years ago, I sadly have come to discover, was not a unique and rare one, but in fact is taking place in more and more places around the globe today, even in so-called developed nations. Tell us why. Well, uh, the main problem, as we see it, is in uh, countries where the laws against these crimes are not enforced at all. In other words, the traffickers, the criminals, the pimps who are... uh, Uh, selling these children have no fear of any sanction, no fear of any repercussion, no fear of any negative consequences, and so they engage in this practice with impunity, despite the fact that in almost every country uh, today it's against the law. It's against the law to sell children for sex. And yet in spite of that, of course, we see the sex trafficking trade uh, growing pretty significantly. Of course, we've perhaps caught a special or two of what goes on in in places such as uh, parts of Southeast Asia, um, countries that we're all too familiar with, Thailand, for example. And as this sex trafficking trade is is growing and developing, um, talk to us a bit about, number one, how girls get even pulled into all of this. And, and why it seemingly is being allowed to flourish in some countries. Right. So the children that get involved typically um, are migrating. So they're, they're, they're from very poor and impoverished areas. And someone comes to their village, somebody from their same ethnic group, uh, they generally refer to them as an auntie, um, they come to the village, maybe they're from the village or a nearby village, and they, they say, tell their parents, you know, I can help your daughter find a good job in the city. The daughter feels a debt of gratitude to her parents uh, in many of these cultures, and, and she's obligated to care for them. And so she wants to help her parents, so she'll go with this auntie. And, and then the auntie, uh, it turns out, is a trafficker. And rather than give her a good job or take care of her, this young woman will be sold into a brothel. And once there, um, she's, she's locked away. She's, she's kept from going for help. But even if she could go for help, usually she doesn't speak the local language. Um, she sees the police coming by the brothel and collecting money every week. So there's really nowhere for her to turn. She has no access to her family. They're from a village up in the hills or far, far away or even in another country in many cases. And she's literally trapped. And then uh, if she refuses to participate, if she refuses to cooperate, they'll deny her food. Um, In many cases, she'll be beaten. She'll be forced to watch, watch pornography. And just over time, they will wear her will down until she submits she submits herself to this abuse um, that goes on day after day after day after day. And these girls, Sean, literally get trapped into this scenario. They're far away from home. They're embarrassed about the circumstances that have taken place. And quite often, those that are engaged in the sex trafficking threaten these girls and their families, don't they? Absolutely, yes. And so, you know, the trafficker will tell the girl, I paid good money for you. And if, if you don't cooperate, then, you know, I will find your family. Or 
there'll be stories of girls who have attempted to run away only to be brought back and killed in front of the other girls to frighten them into submission and cooperation. It's pretty horrifically manipulative, isn't it? I mean, aside from the horror of what they're drawing these young girls into, quite often, as you suggest, uh, they are trying to better their station in life, maybe move from a village into the city with the hope and promise of earning more money to take care of their family. Maybe there's somebody in the family that's ill. They need uh, money because of additional medical expenses, things of this sort. We've even seen cases of human sex trafficking taking place where women and men sometimes are being lured with promises of of immigration into the United States, and if you come over, we'll help uh, pay your way and get you into the country, things of this sort, only to find out that once they arrive here, not having any contacts, having no command of the language, suddenly they're being forced into sex slavery. Exactly, yeah, and they have you know, their their passport, if they had one, has been taken away, so they're in the country illegally, and they feel there's nowhere to turn. If they go to the authorities, they'll be arrested for, you know, illegal immigration. We've seen the stories, as I mentioned earlier, coming out of places like Thailand, the Philippines, other so-called even uh, uh, sex tourism destinations. And certainly I think there's a growing sense of awareness of the problem globally. But I'm curious, Sean, based on your years of involvement with international justice missions, I understand you, in fact, came out of private practice in your own law firm to be involved in this ministry organization. Are we hearing more of these stories simply because the reporting is getting better, or are we hearing more of these stories because the horrificness of this crime is on the increase? It's hard to say exactly. There's, there certainly is a great deal uh, more reporting and a great deal of it, more attention being uh, focused on this issue. But at the same time, what you have is massive economic migration happening um, as people in more and poorer countries move towards those who are more wealthy, where there's more jobs, and this is a this is part of globalization. It's part of a global phenomena. At, at the same time, more and more roads are getting into these villages, you know, that have been formerly isolated and safe, and by their isolation, and so then the traffickers have access to more and more uh, people to to move into the sex trade. So, it's a combination of of both greater attention on the issue. And again, I I do think that's expanding as the process of globalization and the process of economic migration uh, increases. Talk to us a bit about the role that international justice missions is taking in not only addressing increased awareness of this, uh, creating a more hostile environment for those engaged in the trafficking in the slavery end of of all of this, but then, too, uh, the hope that your organization is providing in helping to get these women, and sometimes men, out of this terrible lifestyle. Right. So when in our offices, so, for example, I worked in an office in Thailand, also an office in the Philippines. So we'll do investigations, and we have undercover investigators that will go out and locate these establishments that are selling children for sex. We'll document the identity of those children, the identity of the individuals that are selling them. Um, we'll, we'll bring that back. We have a team of lawyers that will review it. We'll write a report, and then we'll go to the local authorities and, the, and advocate with the authorities. And the evidence that we bring, of the it's a violation of law, but now they have such strong evidence of it that they can't deny it's happening. And so we'll push them and push them until they take action. And then... The, the the object there is to ensure that the girls are rescued and that the individuals that were exploiting them are brought to justice. So there's an arrest, uh, 
criminal prosecution of the traffickers and the pimps and the brothel owners, hopefully leading to conviction, a, a sentence in prison. And then for the girls, we have teams of social workers that work with them and different um, homes. We call them aftercare homes, working on dealing with the uh, consequences of the abuse, both in terms of their emotional health, their spiritual health, and trying to find out whether they can return home, whether that's a viable option. If not, what would be a viable life option for them and giving them education and skills so that they can have a have new life. Oh, so there's just a multiplicity of levels that need to be addressed. And when we come back, I want to talk a bit about what's happening in terms of government involvement to try to deal with this, where the judicial system is, both here stateside and internationally, and most importantly, what the church, the body of Christ can be doing in partnering with and cooperating with organizations like International Justice Missions um, to help not only raise awareness but also provide a way out for so many women all over the globe that have been caught up in human trafficking. I'm Craig Roberts here in tune with Lifeline. A brief timeout. Back to more of our conversation with Sean Litton, Vice President Field Operations for International Justice Missions, as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. Craig Roberts along with our special guest, Sean Litton. Sean is Vice President of Field Operations with International Justice Missions. You can get more information, by the way, on the organization online at IJM.org. That's IJM.org. We're talking about the plight of human trafficking around the globe. And, you know, it's interesting because so often when we think of slavery, we put it contextually in America historically, into what happened here in the United States and many parts of the globe back in the 1800s. And it seems to be somewhat satisfying to think that we've dealt with the issue here at home, and therefore it's no longer a problem. It's no longer our problem. But is it? Well, it is, in fact, at many levels. Not only does it continue to be a global problem, but in fact, in many respects, it's our problem both in terms of the fact that many of these women that are being kidnapped or given promises of a new life in America brought here to be engaged, and they find out later, in the sex trade and then literally end up getting trapped in that lifestyle with no avenue to turn and here illegally, fearful of seeking out any assistance from police or the authorities. And then, moreover, growing numbers of people who travel abroad to engage in so-called sex tourism. It's a sad, sad state of affairs, and yet one that is um, reporting perhaps gets a better awareness increases is something that all of us need to be more educated upon and do something to bring justice to these people. Sean Litton is with us. And, Sean, let's talk a bit about um, the problem, whether it goes from um, sexual assault, bonded labor. I mean, there's a variety of reasons why this kind of human trafficking is taking place. And as we suggest, it's not just a problem in the West. It's a problem uh, globally. Even the continent of Africa, we're seeing this take place. Yeah, it is a global uh, phenomenon. And it's, it's important to understand that when we talk about human trafficking, we're not just talking about sex, sexual slavery or sex trafficking. It's any type of for, uh, labor without consent. We're basically talking about slavery. It takes many different forms. So it could be working on a cocoa plantation in West Africa or working on a fishing boat, forced little boys forced to work in a fishing boat in Ghana, 
or you know it could be young girls in brothels in Southeast Asia, or um, people working in a brick kiln or a rice mill or a rock quarry in India. So it takes many different forms, but it's all slavery. Even we've seen uh, recent increased awareness of the so-called uh, blood diamond trade too. Mm, yeah, that's another area where anytime you know there's a, a lack of law enforcement and a permissive atmosphere where people need labor. It's always going to, you know, slave labor is always cheaper, right? But if there's no law enforcement, then there's no reason for the people um, who own the facility to, to pay. So they can just trick people into it. There's a plentiful supply of people who are desperate for work. This is a problem taking place at many tiers in the West, in the developed nations, in developing nations, and one that I think needs to be dealt with at a variety of levels. Talk to us a bit about the role and uniquely that IJM is playing in all of this. Well, the first thing that we're doing is is in the places where we're working in Southeast Asia and India and Africa and Latin America, we're basically shining a, a, a flashlight right on the issue. But at, a lot of people will say there's terrible trafficking, but to actually go in, to work undercover, to actually document the situation, to show exactly how it's happening, and then to collaborate with the local justice authorities to take action, to take action against the perpetrators and to ensure the rescue and restoration of the victims. But that's not enough. It's just not enough to rescue, um, rescue the girls. You've got to do something that prevents other girls, other young women, other people from experiencing this abuse. In order for that to happen, there needs to be a reliable deterrent. There has to be an end to impunity. And so we work with in building the capacity and the will of the local justice system to actually enforce the law and extend the protection of the law um, to all to all the vulnerable young women in the in the area, so that you know that the brothel owners uh, move away from from working with women against their will from from trafficking in young children. Is this casual, or are there degrees where it's highly organized and coordinated? I, I ask that question because there seems to be so many layers of this web that's taking place to, you know, kidnap women in one part of the world, manage to escond them and get them into countries like the United States, and then get them into a system over here. It would seem to me that at certain levels, uh, Sean, this isn't very casual, but in fact, highly organized. Yeah. So true that it, there's a full range. So, for example, in the United States, it is highly organized. You're dealing with or, organized crime. Same thing in Eastern Europe. In Asia, there are places where the criminals are highly organized. In other places, it's it's just a simple brothel that's being run by, you know, a, a local businessman, et cetera, a local pimp. Um, in in terms of the, the labor trafficking, it could just actually be the regular business practice of that area is that you you trick people into working in your brick kiln or your rice mill, and then you, you hold them there, and you never let them leave, and you, and you pay them just enough to buy enough food to live. And it's a regular business practice, so it, it's, not, it's not even seen as a crime, even though it's against the law. 
I know that your organization has been successful at creating creating some pretty successful pilot programs in certain parts of the world. I know specifically in Metro Cebu in the Philippines over the last several years, um, you in working with local authorities and spreading out in, in, throughout the region uh, have been successful, I understand, Sean, in seeing a reduction in child sex trafficking of nearly 80%? Yeah, that's true. Um so in that in that case, um, it was a pilot project, and there was a uh, a measurement taken by a group of international criminologists to get a, a level of what was the level of abuse happening in the city, and then we instituted our program, basically increasing the capacity of law enforcement, the capacity of local prosecution, the judiciary, working with aftercare facilities to increase the level of services going to victims, and. And then uh, three years later, when they came back and did another measurement to see the effect of the arrests and the rescues and all the rehabilitation, they found 80% fewer girls being exploited in the city and in the metropolitan area, and 75% fewer establishments that had any children at all. It It was a pretty amazing result. In addition to not only reducing the atmosphere that, that allows this typically to, to flourish, providing victim relief, aftercare, uh, accountability then, too, for the perpetrators of all of this, um, long-term transformation, do you get the sense that we're starting to make some headway and moving in the right direction? Absolutely. In the Philippines, for example, so after we instituted that project and the government saw the results, they came to us and said, can you help us on a national level? And and the, the the key issue with all these projects is, are they sustainable? In other words, unless it's the government itself doing it, no organization like IJM or any other organization can sustain it on their own. But in this case, the Philippines took the model in Cebu and is now replicating it throughout the country with their own money, their own resources. They're setting up new police units. They're expediting the prosecution of trafficking cases. They're increasing the capacity of the aftercare systems. The government's doing this on their own, and so we're seeing the ripple effect of just one model of showing how how it can work to increase the, the 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 enforcement of the law can reduce the problem, and now it's being replicated throughout the entire country. And then the other countries where we're working, we're seeing the same effect that gradually it's happening at a, a slower rate, but gradually um, as people see the results, they they want they want to put more energy into it. And, of course, your organization is helping to spearhead a lot of this, educate folks. And toward that end, we mentioned the fact that you are in town speaking at a conference dealing with this very issue. If ultimately, Sean, folks want to find out more about how they can get involved in partnering with IJM to make a difference and the role that the church needs to be playing, quite frankly, from the, the standpoint of our justice obligation, what kind of resources are available through the IJM website toward that end? Well, the the website is by far the best place to start. There's also um, a, an app you can download if you have a smartphone. Um, you can follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Um, there's, there's a book called Good News About a Justice that you can find you know, through, through the website or, or through a, um, a bookseller um, that kind of lays the foundation for what we're doing, what the biblical foundation is for seeking justice for the poor and the oppressed. Um, you can become a freedom partner. You can support the organization financially. You can pay for the rescue that the poor cannot afford to buy for themselves. Um, you can sign up to receive our uh, upcoming holiday 
gift catalog. You can give the gift of rescue to people. And most importantly, and what I'd love for people to do is join us as prayer partners. Um, you can do that through the website, and then you'll get updates on kind of where we're working, the obstacles we're running against, up against, and you can help us through prayer. You can actually pray for these operations that we're trying to get done to rescue these people. Absolutely. But ultimately, we want to encourage folks to not only get educated, get involved prayerfully, but get behind supporting the organization and working in countries uh, globally um, on a variety of continents. We mentioned Latin America, Africa, South Asia, Southeast Asia. You can get more information again online at IJM. That's for International Justice Missions, IJM.org. And Sean Litton, Vice President, Field Operations for International Justice Missions. We appreciate the time. Thank you so much, Craig. It's been a pleasure. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.